Welcome, everybody, to this segment of Flight Safety Detectives. We are here today to talk about uh, some recent developments in aviation rulemaking involving drones. But before we start, I would like to remind everybody that this show is being brought to you by Avemco Insurance. So all of us pilots out there and instructors, if you need any uh, hull insurance, liability insurance, if instructors need to have insurance government, give a call to Avemco. They are specialists in general aviation aircraft insurance, nice people to deal with, uh, pretty easy going because they insure Greg. Well, they're about to insure Greg again. So that's, uh, that's got to be a challenge in itself. I'm going to abuse him because he's not here today. So I finally get to take some shots at him where I don't have to get any back. But Avemco is really nice. Some people, we spent some time with them last week in Oshkosh, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But nice people, if you need insurance, give them a call. And today we have on the show, we have an attorney who just filed uh, in the, in the uh, district of DC, which is where you always file against the federal government, a case dealing with drone laws. And it's a rather complicated case. In fact, I tried reading it all earlier today, 78 pages. It's pretty robust. And it's pretty disturbing, as I think most of you will agree when you see it, some of the actions of our public servants, so-called, in the government. But Jonathan, and, I, and this name is a tough name to do, Ruprecht. Did I do it okay? Uh, Ruprecht, you're, you're pretty close. Oh, pretty. Um, I'm used to getting my name butchered all the time as well. So the easiest way is just Jonathan. So, Jonathan, can you give us a little thumbnail sketch of, of why you filed this suit and, and who's it for? And, you know, bring everybody up to, up to speed, because I'm sure the vast majority of our audience knows nothing about this issue. Sure. Yes. So for uh, what, what was filed was the brief yesterday, but the, we actually filed the petition for review uh, some time back. So the, there, this case has already been going on. This was just at the stage we needed to file the brief. And uh, we have 30, day, 30 days uh, DOJ representing the FAA is going to respond. We filed the case for Tyler Brennan and Race Day Quads, which they sell uh, first-person viewing drone uh, drones as well as equipment. And uh, Tyler Brennan is also a uh, FPV flyer himself. So the big issue here that that the reason that sparked all this is that the FAA decided to submit, they basically did a notice of proposed rulemaking proposing how to basically kind of deal with what they deem to be a very large threat with these drones operating all around, bad guys using them. And then from that NPRM, they eventually published a final rule uh, back in January and it is presently already in effect. Now, the dates that we need to actually comply with broadcasting uh, remote identification are out into the future. Uh, so you don't need to comply as of yet, but in the future you will. And so there is an equipment obsolescence that is coming into play here for unmanned aircraft due to these regulatory constraints. So in the, for, for, as the regulations stand right now, there's only gonna be three ways you can actually fly your aircraft. You're gonna either have to have an aircraft that is what's called standard uh, remote identification aircraft, or you're gonna have to have an aircraft that is limited identification aircraft, or you're gonna have to fly your aircraft in what's called an FAA recognized identification area. Now these FAA recognized identification areas, these FRIAs, uh, the only individuals that can apply for these FRIAs are FAA recognized community-based organizations or educational institutions, that's it. Individuals um, like you and I, we cannot apply for FRIA for our backyard, which is normally where we would fly our drones, right? Uh, the communities, um, HOAs or counties, cities, towns, counties, for the parks and rec department, they cannot apply either. And that's a problem seeing that many people primarily fly these drones at parks or in their own backyard. And so now due to these regulations, you're going to be prohibited from flying in your backyard, right? Your own backyard. And if you wanna fly somewhere else, uh, you're gonna to have to buy 
newer equipment, or you're gonna have to drive much further to a FRIA run by community-based organization, which in order to go there, since it's gonna be most likely private property or some type of lease situation, you're gonna have to join them with dues and paying and all of that. So there's kind of almost a forced association with the CBO or an educational institution that's gonna involve money. And that's problematic for a couple other reasons because what happens if let's say uh, your political uh, leanings are different than that organization's and they kick you out. Now you have to purchase an aircraft that is capable of flying in the the national airspace, right? There's, There's some issues here because you don't really have a due process, right? Um, if this organization just kicks you out of their organization, you can't go on to their private property. So there's numerous issues here, but in the future, three ways to fly, standard ID, remote uh, uh, limited ID, or at a FAA recognized identification area. Limited and standard don't have a actual type of uh, geographical restriction like a FRIA does. So you could fly in your own backyard with standard or limited. I'd like to chime in here on the side of the operators. Now, many people out there know of drones, UAVs, unmanned aircraft, however you want to call them, but not as many people are actually out there buying something that's not a toy for their kid. So I represent the kind of the uh, operator that's fairly normal who's a serious operator. I have here one of my two drones. This is uh, from the DJI Corporation of China, and uh, they make a very good product. I'm not uh, uh, promoting them except to say that this is under the 250 gram limit. That is the lower limit for registration. Right now, I don't have to register this aircraft. Now, how heavy is this aircraft? Here's a bottle of water that's kind of half full. This weighs as much as this aircraft. This can quench my thirst. This can tie into not one, but two satellite systems, has semi-autonomous flight control capability, can hover, can go backwards, forwards, up and down. It can take still photographs, it can take videos. This is a remarkable tool for all sorts of things, whether you're doing it primarily for research purposes or sometimes I use it for personal purposes. I have a roof problem. I fly this up. I shoot pictures of my roof. I send it to the contractor. No one has to get up on ladders. We get all the information we need. And like any other tool, once you have it in your hands, you find out ways to use it that simply didn't exist before because this tool, this level of technology, back when I was a younger person, was only in the hands of the military. I should know, I used to be a flight test engineer in the Air Force, and the kinds of sophisticated technology that is in this aircraft was straight up science fiction in the 1980s. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I will say this, the potential rule changes make it much more difficult to casually fly something like that and learn from something like that. Instead of going out under the FAA regulations, minding my own business, doing reasonable things. I have to now, under this new set of regulations, go out and not only possibly purchase a new aircraft because this aircraft is not remote ID compliant, maybe illegal to fly this in a few years, but I have to purchase the services of a third party who will take my data in real time and put it into databases, put it in the hands of federal government agencies and partners. And I have to pay money every month, whether I'm flying this or not. So all of you folks out there who look at this, maybe a little bit expensive, but once you have it, it's useful. It's an educational tool. It might get your kids interested in aviation. Imagine if you had to pay, I don't know, 10, 20, $30 extra a month, sort of like having yet another streaming service, except this is a very specialized streaming service. It's not coming in to your possession. It's going out of your possession. And what do we get by doing this? Federal government, from my reading of the regulations and what the FAA says and what your lawsuit says, they want to do this primarily for law enforcement and public safety purposes. Don't have a problem with that. But the question I have, which will be answered later on, are law enforcement and public safety um, purposes being served by these regulations? Are they being served well or served badly? I'll throw the ball into your court, Jonathan. Uh, that wow, that was a really uh, open-ended question there. Uh, the uh, just as a point of clarification, the NPRM they actually propose streaming all to all this data to unmanned aircraft service suppliers. However, the network ID aspect was abandoned in the final rule, but 
The problem is, is that when we get down into what happened with all the ex parte information that happened during the rulemaking, right? So as you and I saw what happened in the rulemaking, the public run one, but there's this, this complete background hidden rulemaking going on, right? The off record one where multiple companies were involved in that, the FA handpicked. So you had Amazon, uh, Airba- uh, Airmap, Airbus, uh, you had T-Mobile, and these companies were working with the FAA to figure out how to kind of somewhat do that. And when they were doing that, the FAA disclosed the true intentions of this rulemaking because how they're primarily explaining it now is it's for safety and security purposes. But there re- it really needs to be fully, ex- fully understood that this rulemaking isn't really for like a safety aspect. It's for purely security purposes. And the FAA was pretty explicit with that in the ex parte material that went out. Uh, the, uh, the slides, the PowerPoint slides we had from these secret meetings uh, explicitly say that this information isn't going to be getting used uh, for air traffic control for safety purposes. It's actually going to be for security purposes. And in the FAA meeting minutes that we discovered, the FAA recording what they said to the cohort on these secret meetings, which I would say would be probably more accurate than anything they're going to say going forward on how they tap dance around this, like a like it's a Fred Astaire situation, um, that it said everything it's, it's assumed that pretty much everything that the FAA is going to be acquiring acquiring is going to potentially be downstream to their federal law enforcement partners. Uh, so your FBI, your DOD and your DHS specifically. And what's disturbing is one of those graphics that we showed in there was what the original plan was to downstream all this data, the FAA databases, and then all that information was going to then go downstream to these uh, federal law enforcement agencies. And one of those one of those little graphics, I don't know if you caught that one at the very bottom, that arrow, it allowed for querying past flights. Right. So there's a very serious situation here is that you're transmitting this information of the drone. It's going to show the lat, the long, the altitude of the drone, and it transmits every one second. Additionally, you have the ground controller for, for standard ID, that is, and it's going to transmit in real time uh, with a one second delay every second. The, act, the, the, the ground controller location, which is where you are going to be because you're going to be holding it. Right. So to track the drone or to track the controller is to always track the person. And you're now having that all downstream uh, to the, the, the Internet. And, but the FAA backs away from network ID. So we're not required at the moment to under the new the, the laws that finally came out to broadcast over the Internet. The drone, however, is going to be doing broadcasts directly from the drone. And it's going to be done on unlicensed frequencies. There's not going to be any proprietary aspect to it. And so everybody out there is going to be able to receive this information. So every phone, uh, Wi-Fi router, laptop is going to be able to receive this and then you log it. And then when you start realizing, you're like, wait a second here. If nobody has to pay for this infrastructure, uh, how long before someone's going to set something up just like ADSB Exchange or FlightAware? I'm glad and you mentioned that. And they're going to log you. And then you got, and then boom, I got persistent surveillance all over everything. Now, now, you know, if I flew at a Trump rally or a Biden rally, you know, exactly everything. You, know, you can start piecing together what a person is based upon uh, the Latin along and the time. And you see that over time, you can figure out a lot more about a person. And then, and so you can see how this, this data gathering starts intersecting with fourth amendment concerns where, and that's, it's kind of an interesting problem here is because from, from the FAA standpoint and, 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 you know, even from like, you know, my background is I was a flight instructor. I did a lot of flight instructing and what I do now with drones, uh, primarily applying for waivers, exemptions, and authorizations. We deal constantly with uh, uh, proving the thing is safe. And so there, I mean, there's some, there's some legitimacy to trying to uh, obtain a lot of information to make an accurate quantitative risk assessment. But when a government obtains so much data for safety purposes, they need to keep in mind that there's the Fourth Amendment that limits how much data they can actually ask for. And that is that's something that needs to be talked about in regards to the risk that is accepted. Right. Because we can't just say safety and constitution goes out the door. 
right? We have to remember at the end of the day when we do our hazard analysis worksheet and we have these different hazards and everything, we need to kind of almost remember at the very end when we, we look at these hazards that we go, wait a second, we have accepted that there's a certain amount of limitation on the FAA obtaining so much information. So as to prevent the federal government from becoming an out of control government, rummaging around through our houses, through our stuff and logging everything for everyone, everywhere at every time. So uh, it's kind of where safety and fourth amendment start interacting. You're like, Ooh, it's like sodium and water. They don't play nicely together. Before we go oh. into either chemistry or the constitution uh, for international <laughs> audience out there, uh, the Constitution of the United States, the first 10 amendments are called the Bill of Rights. The Fourth Amendment deals with unreasonable search and seizure. And uh, our lawyer here is present. You can correct me if I'm wrong, because again, my civics education is not what it should be. Unreasonable search and seizure means you just can't have the cops walk into your house and say, you know what, I think you're a thief. I'm going to rummage through things. No, there has to be some reasonable suspicion or preponderance of evidence or what have you. And there has to be an authorization at some level of government to make that intrusion. What you're saying, Jonathan, is that this system as set up has certain intrusive elements here, which run afoul of one of the most cherished aspects of American government, the fact that the government has limits. And, and also you mentioned how this is, uh, could be turned into something like what happened with ADSB and, and companies like FlightAware and FlightRadar24. Right now, Anyone can go online to those companies, I'm sure there are others, and hit a few uh, key switch uh, uh, keys on your keyboard, and you can get a picture of where the aircraft are, where they're flying, which airline is flying from which point to another. It's a beautiful thing. I use it all the time. And in fact, because these signals are open, anyone can follow some simple procedures, put together their own little computer and have their own receiver sitting on their windowsill. Why do I say this? Right here is my ADSB receiver, which is receiving signals and sending it out to both Flight Radar 24 and FlightAware. So I understand how that works for larger aircraft, and it's a good system, but you're not interrupting the kinds of privacy that's being inter interrupted with this proposed system here. Uh, I personally, if it's my airplane that's flying out there and you have my tail number, my altitude and airspeed, that's okay. I'm flying in controlled airspace. It should be something that the FAA and the public should be aware of. And, you know, if I'm doing something stupid, like flying too low or flying too fast, if the public knows about that, that's great. But when I'm flying my little drone right here, do they really need to know where exactly I'm standing or uh, you know, how long I'm standing there? What I personally am doing with a piece of technology that's remote from me? I'm no lawyer, but I don't think so. Hey, Jonathan, you, you mentioned something that, that tickled my fancy a little bit. Uh, I, I served, before I went to the government at the NTSB, I served on, on a number of ARAC committees. And after I was in the government, we had our lawyers on us all the time for ex parte communications. People that have an interest in an accident and will come want to talk to any one of the board members before the board meetings. All right, all staff, same thing with staff. And uh, at the ARAC committees, the rulemaking committees I sat on, we had lawyers in there with us, very, very in tune with ex parte communication so that we wouldn't violate any of the Administrative Procedures Act. But what I hear you saying here is that there was a disregard for that. Uh, did, they, did they get an exemption? from that from somewhere? Now, before you answer that, um, for the benefit of the non-lawyers in the audience, including me, I've heard ex parte all my life, Perry Mason, Law and Order SVU. Could you explain briefly what an ex parte communication is? Yeah, ex parte is primarily, it's one, it's one person talking to some decision maker out, out of the presence of the other. So it's like a secret meeting where it's the decision maker and that individual. And it's typically right, kind of understood that there's it's to the to their benefit, right? And it doesn't allow the other side to fact check them, and you know point out to the decision maker some of the the, the issues there that this this you know the person may be sincere, but the problem is is you need that adversarial party to uh, potentially fact check or at least ventilate it on the record and be transparent so other people can see what was said for for fact checking purposes. Um, 
And there's also just a matter of like fairness, right? You don't really want your competitor talking to the government and then being like, hey, why don't we do it my way, right? You know, my way is a little bit better than the other guy. And you're like, wait a second, I didn't get that opportunity. How come that guy got that opportunity and I can't get that opportunity? And so there's an aspect of just like fairness in all of this. When it comes to rulemaking, the Administrative Procedures Act does not explicitly list ex parte or prohibit ex parte uh, type of operations like they do with like adjudications and stuff like that. So it's not as egregious as you might have it over under um, an adjudicatory sense with like a judge. Um, however, ex parte, uh, they're, they're in some sense, the uh, Administrative Procedures Act and the, how it's done in an informal rulemaking with notice and comment where you, the the agency puts out a federal register notice kind of basically the, you know the the uh putting a notice out to the united states saying hey this is what we're planning on doing everybody gets to comment on it and everybody gets to see what's going on with the comments right so not only do you get to comment on what the faa says there's a benefit where the comments there uh you're able to see them as a matter of public record so you can read them and be like man hey john had a really good point uh but hey wait he's missing this one thing and you can comment on also the other commenters well, what happens is when you get into this ex parte aspect where the FA goes off record, the public one does not is not fully uh, on notice, right? There's a notice aspect here of uh, kind of dodging notice and comment when you're doing stuff off to the side, as well as the, um, the the public is not able to fully critique, right? You're kind of using the crowd the the public as a crowdsourcing device to identify all of the safety hazards, and so from a air safety aspect ex parte is actually very dangerous because you're having this select group of people that think they know what they're doing all meeting in this closed room going yeah i think we identified all the hazards but did they they don't know what they don't know and that's a safety issue and that's really funny that the faa is all like we love safety but then you know when it comes to safety issues like this it's like shh we're violating people's Fourth Amendment rights. You know, we're going to sacrifice safety because apparently FA people have like New York accents. I'm not really sure where I went with that example, but you know what? You know, <laughs> before, so. before we go back to ex parte communications, here's my one attempt at humor during this entire show. Uh, the thing the FAA and a lot of organizations sing, their favorite song is Everything is Awesome. And I think they were singing that during this process. Now, getting back to the serious part, there was a notice of proposed, of proposed rulemaking that had following a 60 day public comment period. As I was reading the, the filing, it was saying that during this public comment period, privately off to the side, there was a group of companies, including the ones you mentioned, who came together with the FAA, separate from the public comment side, and came up with a memorandum of understanding during the public comment period, signed off on them. Now, uh, MOU, a memorandum of understanding is not a contract, but basically they came to an agreement on what they agreed on. This happened outside of the public view. Now, is that set of MOU conversations, was that an example of an ex parte conversation during this process? Uh, yes. Uh, so they, uh, it's not that ex parte is per se, like illegal and wrong. It's the fact that one, the ex parte information that's being given out uh, to this to this uh, the FAA needs to be aired out onto the record. That's that's primarily the, the issue here. But none of this was aired out onto the record. Nobody found out about this stuff until after the comment period was closed. And we only started uncovering everything after we started filing public record requests after public record requests. That's how we obtained the, 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 the memorandums of understanding. Those were publicly available. Once we found those, then we added the laundry list of all the back and forth. We saw and we got the, the meeting minutes, the PowerPoint presentations. And in there, the whole entire outline of where the FAA said they're came up with what's called the concept of use document, which is where they were planning on downstreaming all the information to uh, law enforcement. All of that should have been out in the open so as to avail the public, one, of potentially one might be coming down the pike so as to prevent, you know, uh, uh, getting ambushed, right? As two, also to see if there are any safety issues that they need to be corrected, right? Hey, FA, I'm seeing a big issue here. Uh, there's a safety issue here. There's this, there's a fourth amendment. There's a legal issue here why don't you guys correct it? Uh, and so the FA chose to keep a lot of the stuff uh, secret. And, you know, when, when you're, when you have a graphic showing that all of this data is pretty much going to law enforcement, you know, you can understand why they're trying to do it ex parte. Cause you're like, man, people are really not going to be happy with this. If we're trying to make them all 
send us their data <laughs> and, and then we're going to log it. And even after it came out, the uh, unmanned aircraft, uh, the unmanned aircraft systems traffic management uh, concept of operations document, the ver second version, explicitly had the whole conversation in there about aggregating this data so you could archive it, so you could search it for safety and compliance, legal compliance com purposes, right? So, you know, we got a big brother aspect going on where there's algorithms being able to watch you. Uh, as part of, as disclosed in the UTM ConOps uh, uh, version 2.0. And so that all happened after the ConOps. We also had a, uh, a UPP, it was an unmanned aircraft pilot program where FAA paid uh, the New York test site as well as the Virginia test site to test out certain types of more exotic type capabilities with UTM, which included remote identification capabilities, some of which add uh, some law enforcement aspects, but there's not, none of that was disclosed on the record. That was all separate. And the FAA had even what we filed, we followed up with the Department of Justice after this was all done and said, hey, there's so much stuff that was not even disclosed in the record. Why don't you guys supplement it? You need to put this out for another NPRM, disclose everything that happened so everybody can comment on it. And the Department of Justice uh, relaying back what the FAA told them was that the that what happened and, and, some, and some of the projects, nothing influenced the uh, remote identification rulemaking team. They did not consider it. And even with the remote identification cohort with those secret meetings, the Department of Justice explicitly said in their emails, which are in the addenda, if you go read our briefs, um, it explicitly said that the remote identification rulemaking team did not consider uh, those, uh, the, what was done in the cohort, which is strange because Apparently, the Department of Justice was talking only to the left hand of the FAA, but the right hand of the FAA was the one that wrote the final rule, which explicitly says in there that based upon those secret meetings, the rulemaking was changed from the imperium to the final rule in abandoning network identification. And so why weren't all the other companies involved? They chose FAA chose only eight companies. They chose eight winners. And we have all the documentation from the losers. What about the losers? Why weren't the losers invited to the table? I'm not going to mention all the company's names. We have the documentation, but why weren't they picked? Why was it only these companies that picked? Why wasn't anybody else picked? Why was, right? You're kind of like, there's a lot of questions here. And now there's this tap dancing to cover it up that somehow it wasn't influencing the remote identification rulemaking team when that's clearly not the case as written by the final rule. You know, when I was on, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. When I was on those ARAC committees, years ago, we always had a spot for, for public citizen. There was always one seat at the table that anybody from, from the public could come in and participate in the meetings. So I'm surprised to hear that they, well, of course, they didn't announce them. So there would be no way for anybody to know that they were having these meetings. We always had an announcement every time we had a, a meeting and there was a provision there that anybody could come in and occasionally somebody did come in but uh, not very often, but it was always made available. Right. And so that, that, that kind of goes back to how the FAA overall structured the situation. So as to um, they primarily stacked the deck and did their maneuvering in a way that would lead to a quick outcome in what their agenda is, right? This wasn't a dialogue, but more of like an edict situation. So when, I mean, look, look at when they published the uh, NPRM. They did it right there at New Year's Eve. Right, do you care about what's going on in the Federal Register on uh, New Year's Eve? Everybody's on vacation. They don't care. Right, so nobody's able to mobilize a response. And then there was at least two requests for extension filed. FAA denied both of them, right? Ramrod it. We're going to ramrod this thing through. So after the comment period closed, then they have the FAA sending out a notice saying, hey, Oh, we picked eight companies to be involved in this remote identification cohort. Well, you can't even comment on that if you wanted to, because the remote identification, the, the docket was closed and they wouldn't even open it. Uh, the FAA selectively did demos uh, at the FBI Academy of all things. Right. And you're like, oh, it was like some federal, like, you know, for the, the feds to talk to each other. Yes, the feds were there. We had DOJ and uh, DHS and Secret Service. They were at that meeting uh, to testing out remote identification capabilities. But... There were other people. Who were they? We had state and local, and we even had private citizens. We had one remote identification company. What about all the other remote identification companies? The losers that weren't there, right? FA picked one. 
and not the others. What about some of these private, uh, in, uh, um, we had NFL security. Guys, does NFL security have anything to do with the government rulemaking process? Does drone responders have anything to do with that? No. So the FAA was picking certain groups and they got to come in, they got to see stuff. And it's interesting is the FAA did a disclosure on that. So the FAA was careful at choosing certain times to disclose certain pieces of information saying, hey, you know, we had a secret meeting. Well, they did that after the fact, not before the fact. So as to give people opportunity to show up. Um, so they did it after the fact. What's interesting is the two pages that were disclosed. And if you look at the PDF, you find out the author. Who was the author? It was Catherine Inman, one of the FAA attorneys. They only disclosed two pages. We obtained via public records request all the pages. What does one of the pages say on the very back end that was not put in there by what we believe to be one of the attorneys? It was a whole Q&A section. Yeah, that's right. Q&A. So the people that got invited got to do Q&A with the FAA. Off record. Wow. Prior to the final, I mean, we can keep going on. There was a lot of off record. If you go to my website, I put a whole graph there showing the all the on record stuff and all the off record stuff because the FA did put stuff on the record in the docket. And you look at it and you go, wow, they did do stuff. But you realize, wait, 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 the substantive stuff. That's what's off record. The UPP testing from Virginia Tech, New, uh, the, 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 the Virginia test site, uh, the New York uh, test site, um, with, uh, with all those different things, you didn't, uh, um, you, you didn't have any of that publicly uh, available. At least one partnership for safety program, MOU, that the FA had specifically said that they were testing out remote identification capabilities. Let me and even back and forth. Let me yeah. stop you there for a second. We're going to have you repeat it at the end, but you just mentioned it's all on your website. Where is your web website? What address? Sure. Yeah. So the uh, the if you just type in like remote the, the the race day quads v FAA lawsuit that'll probably be the first one that'll pop up. But if you want to go directly to my website, the uh, it's John it's it's a, a www.jruprechtlaw.com. So J and then Romeo Uniform Papa Papa Romeo Echo Charlie Hotel Tango Lima Alpha Whiskey.com. But if you just type in the race day quads v FAA lawsuit, that page will probably come up in. Uh, Google pretty quick, but I just threw those pictures up there just last night and you'll, I don't know if you can pop them up where you can see them. You'll just see like, you'll be like, whoa, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of meetings. How come you had five meetings uh, now, off record? Here's a, here's and, a timing one issue. Of them, here's one a of timing them even question. said that they met with an executive at the FAA. One, it's like, you're, you, what? How did you get to meet with an executive to talk about remote identification cha changes? Now, challenges, well, let, but, let's go back a little bit to the timing issue. Uh, you sure. mentioned that the NPRM was released on December 31st, 2019, and the comment period happened after that. A broader question, which I want to put out there, is the sequence of events, both planning of this and planned execution, will be happening under different administrations. So at least two administrations have had their hands in the development of this policy. Uh, has there been any essential difference in the way the previous presidential administration and the current presidential administration have been handling this issue. And if there is no difference, is this an implication that either one of them has a problem with this? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, so how it worked with, with the timing and everything is that the, uh, the final rule was uh, published uh, prior to the Biden administration coming into effect. And so that, that's kind of what happened there. They, that now, however, the Biden administration has not tried to explicitly uh, um, do a reversal of that. And there's legal issues to that. So just like, let's say I, I put my like FAA cap on and play from their side. If I were a Biden administration FAA attorney, there's an issue there in regards to repealing a rule is also judged by the same aspect of kind of how they're going about doing all this and from an arbitrary capricious uh, standpoint. So you can't just do to a administrative change, say, hey, I didn't like what the previous administration did. I'm just going to like get rid of it. They too, and the repealing has, according to the Administrative Procedures Act, they have to do a, a notice and then a comment and then a repeal. So the it, it's still standing right now in a new administration. Um, it could be for one, they chose not to do anything, right? Two, they have bigger things to do other than try to repeal that. And that may not be like an endorsement of it. So I'm just trying to be fair to them is that they may not be, um, it, it'll take work to repeal it. And you wouldn't be having that as, as as quickly as we are into this administration right now. So I, I don't, their lack of doing anything right now, I don't think can be really said um, to really say that they uh, affirm it or they like it. I think is the, probably the best way to fairly 
to fairly put it. Are there any signals, any indications that the true um, policy position of this administration is fundamentally different from the last when it comes to this rule? Or is that still something that has to, you have to wait to see uh, what they're going to do in the future? Have there been movements of executive, movements of uh, office uh, responsibilities, that sort of thing? Uh, not, not too much from, from what I can gather uh, as of uh, yet, but even if it, they did, their limitations to repealing this or undermining it is, is limited in a certain capacity because just like you can get sued for creating rules, you can also get sued for uh, getting rules rid of rules illegally. Uh, <laughs> there's, so there's an, that's what I'm saying. Like the inactivity can't be used as like a, you know, going, Oh, they all obviously affirm it. It's like, ah, they may hate it. And they may be like, we got other things to do than try to get rid of it. We're just going to go with it. Um, so, but it I don't, be, I don't it, it could be that they realize it's flawed and uh, are actually uh, hoping that it goes to court and the, and the uh, court will take care of the problem. Yeah, that, that is a possibility from a tactical aspect. Why would you want to uh, spend some uh, resources trying to uh, uh, do the rulemaking to repeal it when if there's a lawsuit going on, you're like, hey, uh, there's some potential there for that. And, you know, they're doing the job for us. We don't we, we don't need to do anything. Right. And ex right. You know, have that political fallout. Right. There's there's no limited upside, but lots of downside. Let the let the attorney and the, the, the plaintiff uh, write the petitioner specifically deal with it. Um, and I think there's actually some very good merit to our, our arguments. Um, there's numerous ones, actually, and that are that are very serious. Uh, so one of them is that the Fourth Amendment applies to specifically right to to homes. And now you have remote identification applying to what's called the airspace of the United States. And when you get into the federal statutes, the federal statutes uh, say to the to the FAA that they are dealing with navigable airspace. And navigable airspace is defined as like basically the minimum floor as set by regulation, the minimum safe altitude. The FAA has never set a minimum safe altitude for drones. They've only set a maximum. So we got a lack of definition there as to where is this you know, but by the statutes, where is the FAA's navigable airspace jurisdiction down to, right? But the FAA doesn't use the term navigable airspace in the remote identification regulation. They use the broadest term called airspace of the United States, which is broader. So it's kind of looks like that, right? Navigable airspace is that, but there's this little portion of airspace at the bottom, this non-navigable airspace, in the airspace of the United States that the FAA is now attempting to regulate. So and so what you're saying, you have that. what you're saying oh. right now is if I have this innocent little drone sitting on my driveway, I turn it on, rotors drilling or turning, it lifts up one millimeter in the air, one millimeter. I'm exaggerating it. It lifts up this much. The FAA now wants to put all these rules on it. Whereas if it's a navigable airspace, I'd have to go up at least 400 now, several hundred feet for this to happen, but under the current situation, if I'm this far off the ground, I'm under their jurisdiction with respect to these rules. What they claim, well, as the regulation is written, let me explain, right? So as the regulation is written and they were careful to choose that broad term, which only shows up in the federal statutes, not in relationship to the, uh, not, 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 towards the FAA, but to the federal government saying that the uh, United States government has exclusive sovereignty over the airspace of the United States. So I'm trying to be very careful with my wording there. That's the United States government, not the FAA. And this is 49 USC 40103. A little bit right below that, that's where it goes in FAA navigable airspace. So the FAA took the broader term from that was applicable to the federal government and basically baked that into the remote identification. Well, the, 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 the effect though that is, is that that airspace, if you are your airspace in the United States descends down and out into your backyard, there's a private property aspect there, but setting aside the whole uh, Fifth Amendment, due process, all those things, uh, the private property rights, where do you want to draw that line? Who cares where you want to draw that line? From a Fourth Amendment standpoint, the airspace of the United States goes to the blade of grass. Airspace of the United States, right, goes to the blade of grass. 
And that blade of grass is a, there's a fourth, there's definitely clearly a fourth amendment aspect there. So how do you federal government without me having any type of suspicion uh, towards me or any you know, uh, of a crime or anything, right? For the sheer fact that I'm flying a drone, uh, I have to now transmit from my drone, my drone's location, as well as my location right, from a standard ID drone of my handheld controller as I walk around. So why, why is it that, that, you got away with doing that, right? When you look at the other cases, there's there's some cases out there regarding like uh, GPS tracker cases, for example. There was one where uh, it's the Caro case, K-A-R-O. And in that case, uh, law enforcement actually real-time monitored the uh, GPS, uh, the, 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 the tracking beacon of the suspect inside his house. United States Supreme Court threw that out as a Fourth Amendment violation. How in the world is remote identification telling me I need to broadcast my location in my own backyard? But here's a hypothetical. Right? Here's a hypothetical. So, I got my innocent little drone in the backyard, mm -hmm. and there's some law enforcement entity who has it out for me, doesn't like the cut of my jib, I don't care. I fly this two inches above my driveway. They are in real time monitoring my remote ID, which has been glommed onto this. They say, mm -hmm. Todd over here just launches airships an inch above the ground. We have evidence of that. I think there's a violation. They use this as an excuse to come onto my property saying, well, we're investigating whether you're flying this illegally. No, by the way, now that we're here, we look around and in plain sight, we see piles of diamonds, you know, hard drives of Bitcoin, all kinds of things we're going to confiscate. What's preventing them from doing that? Well, the Fourth Amendment, uh, one, I mean, if you're like running any legal diamond trade business, you should probably not do it in your this front yard. There's a pile of diamonds. There's nothing legal about having a pile it, of diamonds. It was a hey, I'm just saying, don't put it in the front yard. Pro tip, pro tip, just don't do that. Anyways, but uh, the uh, but if you have it inside your house, right, there's a Fourth Amendment act. Uh, in my backyard private. with the drone. Me okay, yeah, so so yeah. your backyard and stuff like that. Yeah, so if you're getting over into some such as, such as like a a plain view aspect, right? I, I understand that. So because for you know, there's a previous uh, United States Supreme Court case, uh, it was a Florida v. Riley case where a helicopter flew over at 400 feet. And it was pretty much deemed, right? Because helicopters, right, can fly below 500 feet, right? Because they have different kind of rules under 91-119. They were flying at 400 foot AGL. And uh, from there, the law enforcement officer kind of poking out, uh, saw what he believed to be uh, marijuana plants and a grow house in the backyard of the, uh, the defendant. And so the United States Supreme Court uh, allowed that because there was no reasonable expectation of privacy in a, uh, an aircraft flying at minimum safe altitude, according to the regulations, over. There were some, there were some interesting facts in that case regarding whether or not uh, you know, there was, it was like an extremely rarely flown over area. So potentially if, you know, you're flying near, if you live near LaGuardia, you have no expectation whatsoever. There's aircraft all over this, but you live in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, right? You can maybe argue, I had an expectation because there's no aircraft out here ever, right? We don't even have people out here. It's Wyoming, right? Um, and so there's some interesting facts that go back and forth there. Um, but uh, the, the, the issue here isn't so much what's called plain view. It's the fact that they, due to the broadcasting requirements, you are required to transmit from your drone the location, the lat and the long of your controller and the lat and the long and the altitude of your drone to law enforcement. So they don't even need to go to the effort of kind of like coming over and like peeking over the fence and be like, hey, what's that over there? You got some drone, you know, yeah, right? They got to they got to actually work for it in normal life, right? And this one, you kind of have, uh, they made it a little bit easy. They can like sit in their air conditioned SUV and be like, <laughs> and do it. And then when you start realizing, you're like, wow, this is really interesting. If we're doing it all on these uh, uh, unlicensed frequencies, like 2.4, and how the regulations are written, by the way, the regulations are written in such a way as to, it says that the broadcasting needs to be done to the maximum extent. And under the FCC regulations, what this translates over into in like 40, 47 uh, CFR part, part, part 15, um, a digital spread spectrum drone uh, transmission on 2.4 at is the maximum uh, output right there is uh, one watt. If you take it at 400 feet, FYI, if you go up to drone at 400 feet doing one, one watt transmission on 2.4, that radio transmission off the top of my head goes out to almost using a receiver sensitivity of about 110, uh, uh, negative 110 dBm goes out to about 
uh, nine uh, statute miles, which is interesting because when you compare that also to uh, this, the, the PCS uh, 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 radio frequencies, um, then you're probably like, PCS, what are you talking about? Like a, like a phone? It's like, yeah, that's like a 1900, uh, 1950 megahertz. Uh, that typical output for a cellular phone is about negative, I mean, plus uh, 27 dBm. It's about half a watt. And when you plot those out, you, you discover something very disturbing that in the Carpenter case, the cell phone that Carpenter was using in the 1950 megahertz band had a lower, a, a shorter range than the drones that were required to have here under remote identification. He had a fourth method, right? And so there was more, that had a lot also to do with like the aggregation of the cell site um, uh, location uh, information and everything. But that when you start realizing that this technology setting aside kind of like the fourth amendment aspect, just the technology in and of itself is beyond, it's superior to the other technological capabilities and other previous fourth amendment cases that were used and struck down as uh, violating the fourth amendment, right? So J Jones, the Jones case was the GPS tracker beacon uh, case. And actually, let me just, let me just back this up. The Jones case is a really interesting one. It was actually two cases of Jones and Maynard. Uh, and in that case, at the, they, 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 the, the law enforcement got a warrant to put a GPS tracking beacon on that, uh, that guy's car and track him around out in public, right? Because the basically case law says that you have no expectation of privacy uh, when you're out in the road, right? Which makes sense because you're out in public. You don't really have any expectation of privacy that people are going to recognize. So you can't like somehow use that as a Fourth Amendment, you know, like, hey, law enforcement can't uh, uh, deal with me there. They, 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 but what happened in the Jones case was that they, uh, they missed the warrant period the, the, that was valid. And they started tracking the guy for a period of time. And it was all over the place. And then it eventually went to his home. At the district court level, the district court actually threw out the GPS tracking data at the dude's house. That's why the U.S. Supreme Court case doesn't even talk about, what about the GPS data at the house? Because the district court choked it out. And that was like, yeah, the Caro case. Yeah, no, you can't do that. No. Nope. And so then um, Jones was appealed up and Maynard and they're both joined together at the district court of appeals uh, for uh, federal circuit district court of appeals. I mean, a circuit court of appeals for D.C., the same court we're in right now. OK, and the the uh, the, 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 the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in the Maynard case that um an individual had an expectation of privacy in the whole of their movements. While Jones may not had an expectation of privacy in that one, one drive, right, kind of down the road, in the aggregate, he did. It's nearly virtually impossible to sit there and tail a person over a period of time, right? You may see one person going down the street, but you're not going to see everything the guy did over a month, right? And so in the Mannard case, the district court, I mean, the, the, the circuit court, uh, basically threw it out on Fourth Amendment grounds. And then it went to the Jones case, I mean, basically went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And they ruled on a really interesting situation there of a, basically a trespass theory that it wasn't like a reasonable expectation of privacy kind of standard, but they, the, 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 the majority or the minority right there, they primarily were going based upon a intrusion that they, the law enforcement officer physically intruded onto the car by placing the GPS tracker. And that's why it was handled that way. So there was, there's some interesting aspects there when you read that and you're like, wait, so if I'm being required to transmit my location every second, 2.4 at one watt all over the place and everybody can receive it, everyone's going to be able to see where I am. And then when you realize like flight away, right? All these, all these, I mean, I flew over, but a uh, 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 radar. Uh, uh, Light radar 24. Yeah, yeah. And everyone's logging that. You're like, wait, you don't even need to purchase equipment. You already possess the equipment to receive on 2.4, right? Your router, your phone. And then you kind of like go with it and you're like, wait a second. Like all these, like this, this mesh network we have of all these ring devices. Why don't do mention, we need to have. Don't mention Amazon. Right. Well, Right, but do you understand there's an issue there because it's like, why do we have a, an abandoning of network ID? Did law enforcement get a little bit smarter and go, wow, you know what? If we deal with this network ID stuff and it all goes to USSs, we got this constant 
thorn on our side with one of them could be saying how much stuff we're aggregating and what we're doing and collecting. Why don't we just make it all 2.4 and we just all our squad cars, every law enforcement officer, their phone is constantly just listening and logging this stuff, just like a license plate reader logging. And remember, it's not where they see you. You're transmitting your location and the drone's location. They just got to pick it up. They know exactly where you are. And your accuracy is extremely, um, extremely high. And what's really interesting is when you look at the accuracy, <clears throat> it tells something very interesting there that they're tracking people. Um, not so much the aircraft. It's a security aspect, not a safety aspect, because your drone can have an altitude accuracy when it transmits out for a standard air, uh, ID aircraft of uh, within 150 feet. Your ground control has to be within 15 feet. Don't you think the drone that can hit the manned aircraft and kill them should have the 15 foot of accuracy? Why is it the ground controller in my hands has within 15 foot accuracy, but now, the drone on that, doesn't? On that, on that hypothetical, I'd like to swing to a different. Well, that's real. <laughs> yes. But this is, well, the thing I want to swing to is something real. You said some somewhat disparaging terms earlier about collecting massive amounts of data. I happen to like massive amounts of data, including the drone databases the FAA has. And I searched through them several weeks trying to look for some pattern of what the heck is going on and what's the problem here. There was all kinds of bizarre things in there which had no bearing whatsoever on the capability of something, something you can get uh, commercial off the shelf. I don't know what these people are doing, flying them at several thousand feet in and near JFK, going down the Hudson River, et cetera. What, in your opinion, as a lawyer, as someone who knows about drones, as someone who knows about flying as a CFI, what are the real safety issues with unmanned aircraft that are happening right here, right now? And second, how could these new rules and regulations address what you think are the current and real safety issues and security issues with unmanned aircraft? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good point. Um, this ties into one, uh, the overall theme of one of our sections of our brief was that the FAA failed to explain a lot of things. And one of them was that there is a lack of data of really the data showing the bad uses of drones and the, 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 the problems right there, the incidents, as well as to the actual benefits in a quantitative way. Because we all understand what gets measured gets managed. If you have not, you don't, you don't have enough data, you can't make a decision to where you can say that is a safe outcome, right? How can you do that? You don't have enough data. And when you, re when you look at it from that, that, that mindset, when you go, wait a second, if we were doing a hazard analysis of the remote identification drones as a whole, and you looked at what the FAA presented or all of the FAA's publicly presented, you realize that there's, a, there's a, an alarming amount of lack of data that you would send it back to whoever, right? Send it and be like, hey, give me more data. I cannot make a good decision uh, based upon this. And that's it, a really interesting point. Is, and so the FAA, one, they have used some numbers. Uh, the drone sightings data has been used extensively to hype uh, or overblow and just the, the whole situation out of proportions to where everyone's thinking that uh, drones are very dangerous. They're flying near airports. And what's interesting there, I think the media also had a lot to say about this. And I have a whole article on my website on the drone sightings data. I took all the drone sightings data that the FA released on the Excel spreadsheets, and it goes back to like 2015, and you plot it. And you realize uh, uh, one, the some of the statements made by uh, former administrator Huerta um, either some whoever wrote it was uh, factually wrong uh, or they were intentionally deceptive. Those are the only two outcomes because based upon the FAA's own data, it's a, it basically it's a sine wave. And what's disturbing is all the news media articles that went out on drone sighting surge you know, growing massively. Their percentages is typically what they talk about. It's like, you know, it's up 50% over, you know, 200%. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is really bad. And you're like, wait a second, wait, 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 wait. 
you give me a percentage, give me the real number, give me the real number. Six months later, ask for the next number. And you realize that these uh, crazy inflammatory uh, clickbait uh, statements that were made about drone sighting surging uh, were done typically at the very end or like top part of what pretty much like it looks like a roller coaster. It's going off the top. And you realize, and you're like, man, those last six months, whoo, them drones are going to be like taking over. But it's funny, you don't see six months later where it's like going down, right? And you don't see the opposite. I, I've always wanted to write an article uh, and put it out for one of the news media sites, basically like at this present rate, drones will be extinct by, you know, 2022. We're, we're losing 50% of the population every month, right? You don't, you don't see that. Um, you see the, uh, it, it's, it's, it's always when it goes up, it's percentages. You never see it when it's going down. And they'd be like, hey, it's not fair. And I'm like, it's the same thing that the news media has been doing. But let's get backing away. Uh, the mere sightings um, uh, are, are in and of themselves. The FAA made the point in the, F, in the, in the final rule that the sightings data in and of themselves do not, uh, it does not show evidence of a, of a regulatory violation. And we all knew that the Government Accountability Office did a report on that, basically uh, evidencing that. Not to mention, just anecdotally, one of the... Uh, for a client, I obtained a COA to fly right off the runway of a major Bravo airport. And there was a news media article um, about a drone being seen off the end of that runway. And I made the phone call to the client. I'm like, oh, is this you? Because, And you know what? That was done 100% lawfully. There's no way to scrub the data from approved safe flights from the Elio. That's a really important point. I can confirm for a fact. One, I'm like, guys, this is a major point. Not to mention the FAA is granted, it's, it's like, it's over 100,000 authorizations, 100,000. This was some like a year or so ago, that, that number, to fly drones near airports. Do you think that could have distorted the data and some of these drones that are being seen are actually lawful, fully authorized, fully compliant drones. So we're having a hard time measuring, right? You can't measure something. I mean, I manage something if you're not measuring it properly. So you, that that's one issue there. Even assuming you had these drone sightings were of nefarious actors, uh, what's the actual worst case outcome? What's the severity here? We have some um, mid-air collisions that have, uh, uh, I, I would say, been confirmed to happen. There was a Black Hawk incident, and so there's there's it has happened. But then when you actually kind of zoom out and look at it at scale, these events that have happened, how bad are they relative to other events um, that we uh, we have? And so as, as a for, like as a CFI, right, like I'm not scared of drones when I'm uh, if I'm flying an aircraft like I'm for I'm far more scared of the seagulls around the trash dump or you know what? That doctor or lawyer with the Mooney that doesn't know what he's doing flying in around some class G airport, not talking on the radios. That scares me. Uh, so, you know, you have situations there where you kind of look at like, well, what, what situation here in the United States airspace is going to kill more people, um, drones or some of these other things. And so there's an aspect as well as also, I think industry has overblown some of the hype counter UAS uh, companies as well, because it's in their agenda to sell more of this kind of like detect and deter kind of situation. But my, my, my point here is that, I'm not kind of poo-pooing that, that all of the data is bad. Like there's not bad people out there. There are bad people out there. There is a very legitimate usage to remote identification in certain locations. I'm not against remote ID. Uh, remote ID. I'm not saying all these guys are uh, out there are not flying in a bad way. It's, it's that we need to properly measure things so we can properly manage things. That's the key point. So that way we can have a safe outcome that's lawful. So that, that's the real important point. If we see that, hey, uh, there are a lot of drone sightings happening around airports, well, maybe potentially want to say, hey, we're going to require remote identification around airports in the navigable airspace around airports, around prisons, military bases, right? There's, there's, an, there's, there's an understanding there where like, wow, you're properly, you're kind of treating the problem where it lies, not as remote identification is written right now applying to everyone everywhere for all reasons, right? Flying at all times. When there's no aircraft, no airport, no prison, no military base around, totally trampling on the Fourth Amendment, right? So they weren't or properly- possibly there. not even any right? internet accessibility or cell phone coverage. Right, right. So there's, there's some, yeah. So, so there's an aspect here of where 
Um, yeah, there are bad drones. There are people using drones in a bad way. They need to be prosecuted. And I'm totally for that. Um, but you don't take one wrong and then somehow think, you know, you can do another wrong and then in the response to it. So drone sightings data, the lack of uh, the safety data, sightings data and all that, that's actually one really disturbing situation. I've actually been cataloging a list of all the drone impacts that I've been finding all over the years, the last like two, three years, because I'm attempting to actually, with my drone sightings data, pair that up with the uh, incidents and try to actually say, hey, or oh, that accidents is a better way to put it, right? Because we're having major collisions where the drones blow up at this point. And then we can actually come up with some type of estimation as to uh, in using the general aviation um, flight hours and flight times of maybe running some numbers for every so many million general aviation flight hours, uh, you're going to have so many uh, mid-air collisions. The mid-air collisions will result in a hazard of, you know, you know there, there's a certain amount of severity. But that now what I'm talking about here is when doing a risk assessment, we understand from safety aspect that wasn't done in this uh, rulemaking, right? You just have these bold-faced statements of, we got we to gotta treat this problem. And here's some incidents in other countries where this stuff happened. And what's interesting is some of those criminal aspects in those other countries, remote identification would have never remedied, would have never fixed it. I mean, now there's an aspect to, because here's the whole theory behind that, where when you critically think it out, if I'm going to be a bad guy to like blow something up by dropping a bomb on you, am I going to buy a drone that does remote identification? I mean, the majority of smart bad guys go, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to build my own and I'm going to evade your detection by not broadcasting my location. And so then you have to have, if you have maybe a radar ground installation to be able to detect that, you can then as remote identification now, the kind of theory is that the you could look at all the drones and then you could see which one is potentially not uh, communicating and remote identification and then consider that to be a suspicious drone to really focus your efforts. Um, so that's kind of how they're trying to work it right now with their remote identification, counter UAS law enforcement um, aspect. But that, this is all pretty much a Fourth Amendment aspect. We, we're realizing with security here, it's not safety related. You, you would laugh at this. I mean, John, if, if I just gave you some anecdotal evidence of some stuff, but never told you the population as a whole of hours of drone operation and stuff, how, how would you do a risk assessment? How would you determine anything safe? Well, what would you do to me if I even told you about this? Well, you probably wouldn't like my comments. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. All right. Okay. Glad I didn't make it. Uh, but so, right. you know, so, on that thought, uh, can, let's cut this off at this point. Uh, we're going to bring you back. This is a huge, huge issue. It has far-reaching consequences beyond drones. And I think that we need to keep our finger on where this goes. So we, you have now volunteered to be our, <laughs> our legal expert on this case. So you're a friend of the show, and that comes with burdens. Like, oh. <laughs> like when we call you, we expect you to be there. <laughs> so this is like an insurance commercial or something. <laughs> like when, Jonathan, when you call Jonathan, he'll be there or something. Yeah. We have that coming up, as a matter of fact. Right. An insurance commercial, that is. Right. Speaking yeah. of insurance. <laughs> yeah, drone insurance. I mean, it, uh, this, this issue is so large, and it's a moving target, because it's not just Todd and his little drone. I actually have one myself. Right? It's not the little drones. It's this whole uh, unmanned flight and where it's going to go. And it, it's going to go. It's it's no question it's going to go. We're going to have package delivery. We're going to have all sorts of things that we can't even imagine flying around in this low band of airspace. So it's going to, uh, the next 10 years are going to be very, very interesting in, in this right. segment. Right. That's what the, the answer, and that's one of the points we brought up in the lawsuit. The FAA failed to clarify their jurisdiction over that lower portion from a constitutional standpoint, right? Can the federal government regulate this lower portion of the airspace? Because it's interstate commerce is what the federal government controls. How is interstate commerce clause applying to the blade of grass in my backyard, right? And then statutorily wise, navigable airspace. What about that non-navigable airspace center of the grass? FA needs to clarify that. Because so 
I grew up in I grew up in Boston with a lot of tall buildings. Right. So there are places in Boston where you could be totally surrounded by 30 or 40 story buildings. Is the FAA going to control the space in between all those buildings? It's certainly not navigatable. Right. 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 Well, so that that's actually the good point. Right. So for manned aircraft under 91-119, the minimum safe altitude is going to put, you know, put them up way higher. But for drones, can they operate there under 107? Yeah. However, the FAA never defined in regulation the minimum safe altitude, which is what navigable airspace is defined as in the statute, uh, the, the federal statute. So why doesn't the FAA clarify that? They don't touch that anywhere in, the, in this uh, rulemaking. They don't touch that with a 10-foot stick because they realize that is an extremely contentious area that deals with states' rights, private property, all sorts of stuff, takings, claims. And so they're like, nope, I'm not touching that can of worms. And because they didn't touch that serious issue that was raised by multiple people, then that was arbitrary and capricious. The rule should be struck down and sent back to the FAA so that they can fully explain their constitutional authority, their statutory authority, the lack of safety data, the lack of uh, safety benefits. So, Okay. Well, with that, we'll cut it off right now, but we will be back because this issue is not going to go away. And uh, we'd like to thank you for being here. We would like to remind all our listeners that this show has been brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance. If you need hull insurance, liability insurance, insurance as a a flight instructor, give Avemco a call, 888-879-0389 or avemco.com. And to all our listeners that want to help contribute to the show to keep it going, we have a Patreon account, and uh, we appreciate any and all donations uh, to help offset the cost of the show. And with that, I will ask all of you to, if you're going to go flying, do proper pre-planning. Do a thorough pre-flight. We're going to talk about pre-flights here in in a very recent very soon on a current show because we had a lot of discussions out at uh, EAA on pre-flighting. So if you're going to fly, pre-plan, good pre-flight, and then fly safely.